0: Dot .com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 14.
1: A what? said Jean the next morning, staring at Asante while Sal and Liam blearily folded up the last of the blankets. Grace had left much earlier, muttering something about ice sculptures. A fire demon. We don't know what sort yet. But that's impossible. That's... Are you all right? Jean took Asante by the shoulders as if to reassure herself of Asante's existence. Asante smiled and hoped she looked more comforting than exhausted. We're all fine. It's a strange situation. Uh, Any damage we saw reversed itself as soon as the demon vanished. We're still trying to figure out precisely what happened. Manchu is doing some research for us back in Rome. Is there... Asante saw Jean hesitate, then commit to the situation with a bravery that made her want to kiss her. What can I do to help? Asante drew her into a hug. We'll take care of it. You can help us most by making sure everything proceeds as usual here. There's no need to alarm anyone. They both looked toward the door as the sound of sensible heels echoed down the hall of honor toward them. Jean exhaled. Aisha's coming in. I'll need to send her home. No, said Asante quickly. It's probably for the best that we not make our presence here any more disruptive than it already is. Also, if she's been researching the fire, perhaps she can direct us toward resources that will be helpful. But I can do that. You, said Asante gently, have more important work to do. This is what interns are for, as I've recently had the pleasure to discover. She grinned a little. Embrace the power of delegation, Jean. She chuckled. Aisha came in a moment later, blinking at the activity and the blankets that Sal and Liam had tried to pile as unobtrusively as possible under a desk. I can take those, she said to Sal, gesturing to the blankets, nonchalant as a host offering to do the laundry. I know where they go. Oh, thanks, said Sal, smiling. But Jean said to leave them. We may need them again tonight. Aisha raised an eyebrow. I hope my stories about the Chateau Laurier didn't scare you off. Sal smiled. We just have a lot of midnight oil to burn. Aisha, Jean called. Could you pull up the material you've been working with for our friends? They'd like to learn more about the origins of the fire. Aisha frowned a little, but nodded. Sure, anything in particular? Testimony, monographs, unsubstantiated rumors? Everything, said Asante. By the time Jean and Aisha clocked out, Sal, Liam, and Asante had learned a great deal about the original Parliament's architecture and layout, absorbed the rivalry between funding for farms and fisheries, and squinted at the fact that there really had been German plots to do damage to Canadian factories and government buildings during the Great War. But were no closer to figuring out how the ghost of a fire demon was haunting the library. My money's on Bowman Brown Law said Liam. I mean, he saw a fire had started, but ran back to his coat for something precious in his pocket. Suspicious, right? Maybe he had an artifact that had been stolen or tampered with. Sure, said Sal. But what about the weird guy wandering around the reading room who no one knew? The man in the sensible suit? Maybe the Germans had a line on some magic, and we're gonna use that to burn down Parliament? Absolutely not, said Asante. First, the governments don't deal with magic, and the Vatican still had jurisdiction over Germany's magic books during the war. Second, why summon a fire demon when you could just as easily strike a match in a strategically placed wastebasket? She frowned. Unless, if someone were already possessed, perhaps. Which could have been anyone, Sal waved a hand. This is all speculative until we know what we're dealing with. How do we go from someone opening a book and getting possessed to whatever we saw last night? Maybe we should be looking into hummingbirds instead. Or anniversaries, said Asante thoughtfully. What processes take a hundred years? Liam's phone buzzed. Grace is on her way, he said. Sal nodded. So, should we maybe think about how we're gonna deal with this thing tonight? What's the protocol if there's no book or artifact to collect? Asante rubbed her neck. Usually, if that is the case, Team One is already on it. This is a very odd situation. I'd almost say the best thing to do is just continue to observe. Seriously? Liam frowned. Just observe a demon burning a library to the ground. But it hasn't, said Sal. Whatever damage it's doing, it's also undoing. And it's gotta be magical if it's not turning up on cameras, right? If it hadn't been for the motion detectors, we wouldn't even have been here to see it. Liam scratched his chin. If it's magical, maybe we should be using silver on it. Sal frowned. Did you smuggle any silver bullets through customs? No, said Liam. Liam. But I did bring the shroud for keeping books shut. Maybe we can use that to drop it. Sal and Asante looked at each other, then at him. That's a really good idea, said Sal. Liam glanced up at the ceiling. We could rig it over one of the lights above the statue, maybe. If it's a ghost thing, it should appear in the same place, right? It's worth a shot, said Asante. Let's do it. They hid themselves, this time, each in their own nook at the library's edge, the better to surround the room's center, and each clutching a flashlight in case the lights went out again. They'd unseamed the bag into a makeshift net, weighted its corners with office supplies, and hoisted it up around a light fixture in a system that would have done Acme Industries proud. Grace was closest, clutching the line, keeping the net up, and ready to release it at the first glimpse of flame. Two minutes, said Liam quietly, watching the space above the statue. Someone it's a punctual sort of demon ghost, anyway. The room went dark. Demon ghost after my own heart, muttered Grace. She was crouched near one of the alcoves radiating out of the room, and kept her eyes trained on the patch of darkness above the statue she could no longer see, waiting for the column of fire to appear. She felt the heat at her back. In the same instant, she heard Sal shout, Grace, behind you! She turned to see the column forming just as before, except it was a foot away from her, half again as tall as the previous night, and roughly 30 feet from where they'd placed the net. Well, shit, she said, and Box jumped backward onto a desk, still gripping the rope. Can either of you get it in position? Features were forming inside the column, just like the night before, but they were different features, Grace realized. The enormous horns were curved like a ram's instead of a bull's, The muscled body taking shape in the flame was curved, too, and Grace blinked to see the outline of breasts developing. The wings, she noted, with some annoyance, were more or less the same, if twice as wide. She didn't think she could stop it from taking off again. So she did what she was best at. She waited until the flame had a face, then leapt into the air and kicked it. The demon looked more offended than hurt. The flames in its eyes flared but before it could do more than roar, Sal and Liam darted out of their hiding places and toward the center of the room, frantically waving their arms at it. Hey, ugly, shouted Sal, rearing back and throwing her flashlight at it. It bounced harmlessly off one of the horns, but earned her the demon's attention. Nostrils flaring, it lowered its head and charged at her, but stopped not three feet away from her, as if distracted by something. Sal looked up and saw two things dimly by demon light. One, that the hummingbird was hovering at the level of the demon's eyes, and two, that she was directly under the net of silver mesh. Grace, now, she shouted, then dove out from beneath it. Grace let go of the rope. The net fell. It passed through the demon like water through a sieve, but dropped the hummingbird from the air like a stone. The lights came back on. The demon hovered still in the air for a moment, then shook its head as if to clear it. It looked up, growled low in the furnace of its throat, then beat its wings twice and rocketed through the library's cupola in a symphony of smashed glass and timbers. Grace stared after it. Liam and Sal stared at each other. Asante hurried toward the net. Pinned beneath it, as if by an enormous weight, was Aisha. You idiots, she screamed. I had this. Fucking bookburner scum. Get this off me. You're, uh, said Asante while Liam looked away, naked. Sal found herself mentally building the trusses necessary to bridge the canyon between the sweet, even-tempered guide she'd met two days ago and the scathingly furious woman immobilized beneath the net. Listen, said Aisha, biting each syllable off. If you don't take this mess of silver off me now, I won't be able to chase down the ifrit you just unleashed on my fucking city. Take it off. Sal, Grace, and Asante looked at each other, stunned. Then Asante stepped forward and lifted the net. Almost instantly, Aisha's limbs seemed to shimmer, melt, and fold into feathers. And a huge black bird flew up to and through the broken window. I'm going after them, said Grace. We'll come to. You won't be able to keep up. Then Grace was a blur, leaping and scaling shelves and walls to the wreck of window and climbing out. The demon wasn't hard to find. Grace could see an orange blur about a mile south toward Confederation Park. She closed the distance in three minutes. The Ifrid blazed in a garden of ice sculptures, lighting up an orchestra of crystalline instruments and dancing animals while lobbing balls of flame at a crow, diving fiercely toward it, darting back, croaking furiously the while. It hadn't yet hit the crow, but it had hit a number of the sculptures. Grace narrowed her eyes. Oh, hell no. She crouched down. With her good hand, she packed a snowball against her leg, then reared back and threw it at the demon's head. It roared and turned to face her, which was just enough time for the crow to fly down in front of it, meet its eyes, and somehow still it. Then Grace watched as the demon's shape wavered, paled, and did violence to the laws of thermodynamics. The sculptures reformed pristinely around her as the demon shrank back into a column and vanished. The crow flapped down to Grace's shoulder. We need to talk it said. Four. Grace's text had summoned them to the Elgin Street Diner, an all-night place that was empty, except for a bored-looking staff member playing games on his phone. Sal, Liam, Grace, and Asante crowded the corner farthest from the door. Across the table from them sat Aisha, now in jeans and a bright red T-shirt with an oversized yellow star in the middle of it. One hand wrapped around a mug of coffee the size of her face, while the other hand methodically depleted the contents of a bowl of raw sugar cubes, bypassing the mug in favor of delivering them straight to her mouth. She looked at them, level and cool, and a little curious as she crunched the cubes. Well, she said, licking her lips. I guess it's nice to see the bookburners have diversified their hiring practices in the last hundred years. Sal didn't rise to the bait. Were you around then? No. Ayesha sipped her coffee. My great-grandmother was. Book burners fucked up her job then, too. And what is that job? Asked Asante, with a frank, open curiosity that made a line in Liam's jaw twitch. Aisha smirked a little, but her heart didn't seem to be in it. She tucked a loose lock of her thick hair behind an ear and looked into her coffee as if to read the answer there. Immigration and citizenship, or more to the point, recently. Border security, she said, and the bitterness of it could have been dredged from the bottom of her cup. The tide is rising, all that. It means migrants, it means refugees. We help translate people into this plane of existence. You mean, Sal started to say before Liam sputtered, you're deliberately bringing demons into the world? Aisha looked as if she was about five seconds from transforming into an ice pick and driving herself into Liam's eye. Grace and Sal both tensed. Asante reached out a hand, not touching her, but resting it palm down near Aisha's coffee mug, looking calm and interested. Please, said Asante, continue. Aisha exhaled. You know how there's no such thing as a fish? Everyone, almost in unison, blinked. Aisha continued. It's one of those colloquial phrases that annoys scientists, but makes for a good metaphor. There are loads and loads of sea creatures, but that doesn't mean they're closely related to each other any more than a bat is a bird because it can fly. Go back far enough and we evolve from fish, but we're not fish, you know? Sure, said Sal, frowning a little at the fact that Asante's eyes were widening in comprehension she herself hadn't yet reached. So? So there's no such thing as a demon. She looked straight at Liam. There are spirit peoples. There are ifrits, there are jinn. there are peri. There are nations and ethnicities and complications. There's the further fact that these aren't monolithic groups any more than Muslim or queer or woman is. I mean, fuck, this is so goddamn basic. I can't believe I have to explain it to adults. Her mug trembled as she raised it to her lips, sipped, shook her head. There's as much variation among spirit peoples as there is among humans. But you don't see them except in terms of their distance from you, from what you understand. Some of your so-called demons get named angels if they're pretty or if they were nice to you. Your whole way of looking at the world is so small, it makes it hard to breathe. As if punctuating her point, she took a long, deep breath. It struck Sal, then, just how young she was. She really was only on the threshold of 20. Young to be battling monsters or rescuing them. So, said Sal gently, what's going on at the library? Aisha sighed, sipped, and continued. A hundred years ago, she said quietly, and Sal could hear her calming as she settled into storytelling. Someone stole something from my family. My great-grandmother, her name was Nasiba, worked on the hill as a cleaning lady. Someone spied on her, most likely, followed her, watched her work a ritual and translate an Ifrit into our world, and got ideas. I can imagine why. It was wartime, and it must have been tempting to summon an army of fire creatures to burn the Hun out of the trenches, or whatever. But she never learned who. All she knew was that someone wrote down the refrain from her summoning song, only the refrain, without any of the protections, protocols, parameters. Like stealing a flame from a hearth and trying to warm yourself by putting it on a pile of newspapers in a well-ventilated room. She shook her head again, bit her lip. The night of the fire... Someone read out the refrain. Nasiba felt it, felt the doors between worlds open, and an Ifrit, with no constraints, no training, no preparation, came through, possessed whoever brought it, and went on a rampage. It left from person to person. Nasiba chased it, she calmed it, she expelled it from the person it was occupying. She started doing the passes that would limit it. That part, it's like drawing up a contract. Aisha put her coffee down to draw the shape of a contract on the tabletop with a fingertip to talk with her hands. Some boilerplate. Have you ever committed acts of genocide, etc.? And then the cost of staying is the withdrawal of their damage from the world. Ifrit's are self-sustaining fire. Their flames don't burn unless they will them to burn. They can reduce a thing to ash, pull their flame back, and undo the damage. Zell startled at that and looked at Grace. Grace's look of unflappable scrutiny didn't change. And if they break the contract? Asked Grace. They vanish back into their own world instantly, and any damage they did goes with them. Like in the library, said Asante slowly. Like in the library, said Aisha, with one exception. They can't bring people back to life. Aisha looked down quickly, but not before Sal could see a storm of misery flash over her face. If they kill someone, there's no recourse. Whether it's self-defense or an accident or to protect someone else- There's no way to let an Ifrit who's killed someone stay. Aisha picked up her mug again, turned it round in her hands. So Nasiba had the Ifrit right at that point. Swallowed the damage, signed the contract. When the book burners turned up, Aisha tried and failed to shrug in a way that was more nonchalant than furious. First, they thought my great-grandmother needed rescuing from the demon. Then they thought she summoned the demon and had to be stopped. They distracted her long enough that center blocks started coming down around them, and people, people started dying. Aisha took another sip of her coffee. Saul thought she could see her blinking back tears. So now Nasipa could only banish it, but that's a complicated process without the support of a contract, and that's without contending with book burners in a building that's literally on fire. So she chased the Ifrit into the library. Michael McCormick shut the door after them and escaped. She engaged the Ifrit in a magician's battle, you know, the thing where you try to out each other in a sort of call and response until one of you yields, until it turned into a pomegranate and burst. It's a super traditional move. Aisha said this, a bit like an art critic. The response is to turn into a rooster and peck at all the seeds until you find the one that contains the Ifrit's true essence. But my great-grandmother was out of time. There were book burners at the door, she had a family to think about and protect, and the stakes of failure were too high. So she just... She put everything in the library to sleep for a hundred years, and she fled. Took her family to Toronto as far from the Catholics as she could get. Raised two generations with the knowledge that we had to come back to Ottawa and be here in time for the Ifrit to wake up. Sal frowned. But there were at least two. Aisha shook her head. No, those were only fragments. Echoes of the Ifrit buried in the pomegranate seeds, trying to become whole again as my great-grandmother's magic weakens. But they look different, said Liam, frowning. Aisha rolled her eyes. If you were broken into hundreds of pieces, you wouldn't look much like your current self either. How much have you grown and changed over your lifetime? You might appear as a kid, as a teen, with different teeth or hair. Ifreits can change shape. They keep the memory of every shape they've worn. Some of them remember shapes they haven't yet worn. She shrugged. They're, you know, magic. I've been banishing them every night for the past week. Ashanti looked concerned. But how many have there been? Aisha chuckled wearily. I've got 99 problems, and Ifrit's are all of them. She leaned back in her chair. They started out smaller, though. It's why I've been able to banish them so easily. Their origin isn't the Ifrit's world, but the Ifrit. I banish one, it goes back to the source seed. That's why they've been getting bigger and stronger the closer we've come to the anniversary. She bit her lip. Now there's only one left wrapped in all its power, and I don't know what to do with it. Ah, said Asante, softly, you can't banish it. Liam, Sal, and Grace all looked from Aisha to Asante and back in confusion. Sal ventured to ask, why isn't that what you've been trained to do? Aisha sighed. You remember the part where banishing an ifrit undoes any damage it's done? Sal frowned. Yes? This Ifrit's fire burned down the 1916 Parliament, the Parliament that's since been entirely rebuilt. Oh, said Sal, blinking. So if you banish it, said Liam incredulously, the old Parliament comes back? In exactly the same place, said Aisha, where we currently have a perfectly nice Parliament, full of, you know, a government, civil servants, people who'd be obliterated beneath the weight of the old Parliament reappearing. Not a great look. No kidding, said Sal, thinking. So your options are what exactly? You can't banish it. You can't translate it, as you said. Are there any loopholes to allow it to stay? I've been studying this for years. The only loophole I've been able to find is nasibas," said Aisha quietly. But I'm still a novice. I'm not as strong as she was. I can't work that kind of area-wide magic, even with the tide rising in my favor. It's a knot I can't untie. She leaned forward again, laid her hands flat against the table surface, looking miserable. I have to cut through it. I have to kill it. There was a moment's silence. Then Grace reached out a hand and covered one of Aisha's. Hey, said Grace, that we can help with.
0: Homicide detective Brian Clouser is losing his mind. How else to explain the dreams he keeps having? Dreams that mirror with impossible accuracy the gruesome serial murders taking place all over San Francisco and the feelings he gets from those dreams. Not disgust, not horror, but rather excitement. Nocturnal, by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler, is a complete season with 45 episodes, available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland, a man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct, right away was it was a political thing.
0: We're talking about Russian-trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service.
1: An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Back in their hotel room, Grace and Sal packed, while Asante brought Menchu up to speed. Liam didn't so much pack as pace. I'm not sure I understand, said Manchu over Skype. There's no book? According to Aisha, said Asante, she is the book. Her family keeps an oral tradition of magic. They inscribe it in their children as they grow into their power. It would explain why she reacted so strongly to the silver. She is more magic than most magic users. This is bullshit, Liam grunted. How are we supposed to keep this from Jean? Jean, said Asanti patiently. Knows there are things we cannot tell her. She invited us here to solve a problem. That's what we're doing. But hiding the fact that her intern's a wizard? She could be in danger. We're supposed to let her go and trust in her without knowing she could turn into, I don't know, a bear or wolf or something. We can't just trust her to do what she says she will and then let her go. Yeah, said Grace, folding his shirt. Magic people definitely can't be trusted. Liam opened his mouth to reply, then shut it. The silence gained weight and mass. Grace folded another shirt. Look, I, I didn't- Grace shrugged. Doesn't matter. We need to kill any freight, and you need to get over yourself. Hey, said Sal feebly, looking from one to the other. No, said Liam more quietly. You're right, I do. I'm sorry. He exhaled while Sal stared at him. This in the time. I'm inclined to agree said Manchu, clearing his throat. I wish I could do more to help from here. You're certain we shouldn't alert Team One? Even if they could arrive in time, said Asante, we promised Aisha we would limit our involvement. After all, as she said, the last time we were here, the parliament burned down. She coughed a little. At any rate, she has a great deal at stake here. If she can't destroy it with her magic, she intends to absorb it into her body and allow Grace to kill her. Manchu looked distressed. What? Aisha says that only magic can harm Ifrit's, but as she said, she is a sort of book. She can travel it inside her own body and hold it there until- Asante chewed her lip. Until we shut her. Obviously, we would rather it did not come to that. Obviously, said Menchu. On the night of the anniversary, Aisha walked a wide, careful circle around the place she said the Ifrit would rise murmuring words in a language that sounded to Sal like Arabic. She's layering guard lines, Asante explained, trying to keep it from escaping upward the way the last one did, and keep its magic from escaping to harm the library. And us, she said, almost as an afterthought. It's fascinating. I can't place her dialect at all. I wonder how far back the transmission of the formula goes. If we had more time, she'd probably refuse to answer your questions, said Sal. On account of how you're a book burner, Asante sighed, true, but one can dream. As Aisha chanted, green shimmering lines began to appear in the air, trailing in her mouth's wake before rising and spinning around the circle's center in brilliant orbital lines. The space inscribed by them was 15 feet across and went up almost as far as the windows. She stepped back and out of them, then walked over toward the team. That's the best I can do, she said, looking over her work. A bit tight for a magician's battle, but that's probably for the best. You all know what to do if I fail. Can I just say, said Sal, that I think this plan is terrible, and there has to be some other way to do this. I'm all ears, said Aisha brightly. Totally willing to hear suggestions for next time this precise situation arises. For now, we're out of time. So, to recap, it will appear I'll challenge it to a magician's battle. If it beats me, I'll suck it into my body. You'll kill me with silver, clear? Crystal, said Grace, tightening her grip around the dagger Aisha had given her. Great, said Aisha, taking a deep breath. I really appreciate this. I wasn't sure I'd be able to do it to myself. Don't mention it, said Grace a little gruffly. Then a red spark flared to life inside Aisha's bubble and she tensed. Here it comes, she said. The fire this time was less a column than a wall. The breadth and height of the creature unfolding within it was difficult to comprehend, but it couldn't unfold completely. The green lines of Aisha's magic covered it like layers of skin, drum taut and seconds from bursting. The body taking shape was almost a perfect triangle, shoulders broad enough to stroll on, a burning torso muscled like Milton's Satan. Only its eyes looked like its previous incarnations, white-hot circles of licking flame looking straight ahead. Aisha shouted something at it in the language of her magic, and it looked down at her. Then it raised an eyebrow. Suddenly, the team became aware of its eyebrows and flexed the corded muscles of its arms until it burst every layer of green enclosing it, showering the room and the team in sparks. It stretched its limbs, unfurled its wings, and laughed in a voice of heat and smoke and burning. These are cheap tricks, Nashiba, the Ifrit boomed. I thought we had an arrangement. Is it speaking English? Whispered Sal next to Asante. Asante shook her head. I think it's just speaking, and we're understanding its intent. Aisha looked stunned, then shook her head and rallied. Ifrit, I challenge you to- the Ifrit waved her words away. Nasibar, why are you doing this? I told you I would wait. I have waited. I'm ready. Send me home. Aisha stared at it for a long moment. Sal watched her mouth working without making a sound. Finally, she said, with a quiet that carried, Nasiba was my great-grandmother. I'm Aisha. It was the Ifrit's turn to stare. Ah, Forgive me, little one. You look alike. I thought. She did say she would need a long time. I forget how brief you are, how quick you burn. Its gaze swept the room, locked on Grace, then on Liam, Sal, and Asante farther back. Who are these? They're not important, said Aisha quickly. I, I Ifrit, I can't send you home. I came here, she bit her lip, closed her eyes. Swallowed something back, I came here to offer you a choice. The Ifrit seemed to shrink, then did shrink a little, as if to listen more closely to whatever Aisha had to say. Speak, daughter of Nasima's daughters, and I will listen. I can't send you back, said Aisha thickly, and I can't help you stay. There are seven deaths between you and this world. But I can put you to sleep again if you let me. Work with me and I can take you out of time. The Ifrit looked at her for what felt like an age. And my other choice? Aisha looked too miserable to speak. The Ifrit nodded. I see, I had hoped to wake to better. I promise, said Aisha in a rush, I promise I will work at this every day. I will teach my daughters our craft, I will find a way to fix this. But I haven't yet, until I do. I will sleep, said the Ifrit gently. In the sleep that is not sleep, in the dreams that are not dreams, in the world that is no world, where every moment is an age, so Nashiba said to me, is this to be my life, little one? An age of sleep and a moment's waking to renegotiate terms? How many lifetimes of punishment for an accident? Aisha's chin trembled, but she straightened her back and looked into the twin hearths of its eyes. That's the best I can do. Strange, said the Ifrit. Musing, how oh, one can sleep a hundred of your years and wake so tired. I am tired, Aisha, I am very tired. I'm sorry, she whispered. So am I. The ifrit blew itself back up so huge it looked as if its shoulders might crack the cupola. Grace tensed, Aisha stood her ground. Then the Ifrit bowed its horned head so low that the bone tips touched its chest. Its voice rumbled through skin and bone like an earthquake. I will do as you see fit, for the sake of your great-grandmother's friendship, and for the hope of earning yours. As they watched, the Ifrit began to uncoil into pale smoke. Aisha, bearing up beneath her disbelief, began weaving the smoke into patterns on the air, mapping her language over the gestures, spindling the whole of the ifrit along her hands and wrists, until all that was left of its heat and flame and muscle was a single pomegranate seed glinting in her palm. She murmured to it and began to cry. Jean and Asante embraced in the lobby of the Chateau Loyer, while the porters carried the team's bags to the taxi, waiting to take them to the airport. Aisha was there too, in smart casual attire that suggested she'd just finished a shift, telling Gray, Sal, and Liam about the history of the Rideau Canal. I'm sorry you couldn't stay longer, said Jean, but I'm so grateful for what you did. Thank you. It can't have been easy. Easier than we imagined in the end, said Asante, smiling warmly before pulling Jean into a kiss. Sal and Liam shared the private look of siblings embarrassed by their parents' affection. Grace leaned in closer to Aisha. What did you say to it? asked Grace quietly at the end. Aisha smiled a little. Just good night in Arabic. Literally, it means may you wake to grace. Grace looked at her for a moment. Then she nodded. Good luck. Thanks said Aisha and sounded like she meant it. Sal reached out a hand and Aisha shook it. Sure you don't want to come along? A lot's happened to the organization in a hundred years. She looked at Liam, who raised an eyebrow. Okay, I mean, I haven't been here that long, but we're a decent bunch of people. I'm sure, said Aisha, smiling crookedly. But I've got exams to study for and a degree to finish. Like, keep in touch if you want, but don't blow up my phone, you know? Figuratively or otherwise. What does someone of your, uh, interests even study? Asked Liam, equal measures curious and wary. Aisha grinned. Holly, sigh, abs. Time to go, called Asante. Jean, thank you again for your hospitality. See you soon, I hope. They hugged one more time and parted. Epilogue. Menchu opened his door to find Asante holding a bottle of maple whiskey liqueur and two glasses. He smiled and gestured her inside. Sal opened her door to find Liam holding two takeout cups of hot chocolate and a box of pastries. So, he said a little sheepishly, this is me wanting to talk. Sal stepped to the side and smiled. Grace lay in her bed, thinking of sunsets and stars, while watching the flame of her candle flicker, tricking her eyes into seeing horns, limbs, a face. She let three minutes go by before she reached out and pinched the whip into smoke. You are
0: listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. <laughs> Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a Storyglass production presented by Realm. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling-medical-investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Bantwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. GZM Shows and the creators of Six Minutes are rolling out their newest audio adventure with the podcast Discovering Dad. A cautious single dad with a secret past and his rebellious kids embark on a thrilling quest complete with hidden treasure, villains, and a family curse. New episodes of Discovering Dad roll out weekly starting June 11th on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show so you never miss an episode or listen early and ad-free as a GZM Show subscriber. Go to gzmshows.com to learn more. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar. Mur Lafferty, Andrea Phillips and Brian Francis Slattery Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap Performed by XC Sands Audio production by Amanda Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton Original theme by Hashem Asadolihi Featuring Jody Redditch ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell Cover art by Annie Wu Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.